0: Today on the University Podcast, it's your favorite day of the week. What day of
1: the week is it, Keith? Philosophy Friday! Friday. (laughs) I almost start laughing before you even start talking. Consistently. Well,
0: today we are, uh, man, we are almost to the end of A Shot of Faith to the Head by Dr. Mitch Stokes. And today we are in the last two chapters of part two, in which he is responding to objections that science has disproven the existence of God, and Stokes has been really ripping this argument to shreds and actually turning it on its head to say that science actually proves the, or at least gives evidence uh, that God exists. And so today we're going to talk about math.
1: Keith, were you good at math in school? I was actually really good at math in school. So that math was one of my strong suits, math and history. And I guess I remember a teacher saying, you're doing it wrong. So you're supposed to be good at like uh, your kind of your social studies and like English sort of thing. And then math and science. And I was not good at like chemistry and biology and stuff like that. But I was good at math and um, kind of history. I can remember, it's dates. I remember, you you gave me a date. I could just remember remember timelines left and right. So, uh, but yeah, I was uh, geometry and uh, math. I was really good at.
0: Okay. Yeah. I loved math when I was young, but... I think what actually hindered me from really doing well in the upper levels once I got to calculus and trigonometry and and all that
1: brain. Well, (laughs)
0: besides (laughs) that just being hard, I did not think it was relevant or applicable to anything in my life. And it's funny in this uh, in one of these chapters, he's going to basically admit that it's not, you know, there's not practical utility. For a lot of the stuff you learn in math, and he's going to say it's actually beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, but he has some other interesting stuff for how math and theology are connected. That I was like, if I had, if someone had connected those lines for me, I would have probably tried a little bit harder.
1: Y- yeah, one of the things like for this is geometry, which is, I guess. Uh, uh, set of mathematics but that i was uh, yeah i always just enjoyed it like i love being able to see the the connection of if 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 then you yeah. know i loved i loved all that stuff it was so, beautiful to you <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was i didn't have a language for it but yeah <laughs> definitely beautiful to me yeah. and so yeah i always uh, always enjoyed it and even as i got to the higher levels i uh I enjoyed it, and then, um, yeah. So
0: yeah, so tell us today, we have some new jargon uh, for folks. So what do we have today?
1: Yeah, we have uh, two words. Uh, we're going to have realism and nominalism. Okay. And so as we're going through these chapters, one of the names that he brought brings up a handful is uh, Plato's. And, uh, and Plato has a philosophy of what's called the forms. Mm-hmm. And so a realist is the person that think that these forms really exist. So if you and I are talking and we refer to a cat, so people listening to this podcast who I've never met before, if I say cat, we all have the same basic concept in mind. And so the question is, is there a thing called catness that exists, or do you only have individual cats that exist? Mm -hmm. So the realist says there's this thing called catness that really exists Not hunger games. Not hunger games. No, no. There's a catness that really exists. Whereas the nominus says we only have names for cat, and then we so you have all these particular cats, and then we just abstract from that to this idea of catness, but the catness never exists so the okay. realist says there are these things almost like platonic forms and then the nominalist says they don't exist and so oftentimes when you're doing philosophy you realize there's, there's always the, the two sides of almost every discussion and so you ha- kind of ha- always have the binary the realist versus the nominalist. and what's important in this discussion is does the number one actually exist is there a real thing called the number one this universal one yeah. um, and then and then how is there is this thing that you know every time I say two and then we add two to that. We always get four. It doesn't matter where I'm at in the world. It doesn't matter if I'm on the moon. It doesn't matter if I'm in China. Um, two plus two is going to be four. And so uh, it's important in this discussion just because, yeah, w- w- whether or not numbers are real or whether they're nominal, just a, a term that we use. And so uh, Mitch in this chap- in one of the chapters even makes a distinction between uh, the number and a numeral. Yeah. So obviously the numeral, when someone writes on the board, I remember like I was on campus couple years ago and a physics professor it's kind of funny they brought a their physics professor out kind of like their Goliath and this, this, isn't, like a, this isn't my pat on my back but you come it, to me with numbers <laughs> and symbols yeah. and, uh, but, and the advantage I had is like is to get him off of physics um, because he's just going to tie me in a pretzel on, yeah. on the particulars of physics but when he starts whipping up his uh, physics equation and at, and when you start to get into the particulars of okay when you are referring to the number two and you're referring to these things what are you referring to? And then I remember him just like well that and he just points to a sign where there was a number two on it. And I was like, so if this sign disappears, does the number two disappear? He's like, no. And then we start going back and forth and eventually he's like, I got a phone call. And it was kind of funny because like he didn't know what to do and like he he knew his physics, but he hasn't thought through really the logical implications of, yeah, what is the number two? He can do tons of stuff, manipulate it and do all this stuff with formulas, but he never reached the place where he thought about realism and anomalism. You know what I mean? He just kind of, well, it's just what we do, and most of us do that. When you go and you buy food at the grocery store, you hand someone a dollar, you get 20 cents back, and you, you don't think of the philosophy <laughs> that's going on, it's taking place there, you know yeah. what I mean? You, it just works, and so you do it. And so many people uh, live in that space. So anyway, when you're having these discussions, it's very helpful to have the like, term like realism and nominalism in mind, uh, because as you begin to interact with people, you realize that most Americans today are nominalists. But as I think Mitch shows well in this in these chapters, is we all have to be realists in some regard. You need this invisible realm of real things that apply to the world. Yeah.
0: So, so do you know it all? So would we consider Plato a realist and Aristotle a nominalist? And I he talks a little bit about how some people we were arguing over what exactly Aristotle. Meant and and but I haven't read a ton of Plato and Aristotle and looked at their debate, but
1: I feel more comfortable saying that uh we would identify uh Plato as a realist and not intelligent enough to say particularly what Aristotle yeah is, is affirming because that yeah, like he said here, I haven't I haven't read tons of Aristotle stuff to um and even as he lays out there's you get people on kind of both sides of the debate of what yeah. he's really saying and I'm not immersed enough in it to speak intelligently to it,
0: yeah, so. Uh, the the realist would you say the person who's a realist um, believes uh, in a supernatural realm by necessity like that there's no way of being a realist and not logically also believing in some supernatural realm because of the forms you have to have some form of Plato's heaven where those things are
1: yeah and so you would be so so. And even as you're using a term like supernatural, we might differ on what exactly that means. And okay. so the super just being beyond that, which is natural. Yeah. Um, and so it doesn't necessarily, like oftentimes we use, oh, supernatural, we're thinking like beings. you know, yeah. in, in the sense of personal beings, be it spirits or be it God. So um, you could be a supernaturalist in the sense of there, there, there is some sense which this, in the number one eternally exists somehow. And the number two eternally exists somehow. And it's not natural in the way we're using the term. Uh, in, in the sense that it's physical we can bite it chew it hand it to one another or anything like that so it's much But so it is super natural in that sense that it's not a natural thing that occurs in the physical world yeah. um, but we shouldn't necessarily therefore conclude they believe in a God. But I would say everybody who's a realist has some sense of things that extend beyond the natural realm that are unchanging. So the forms are unchanging. Everything that we experience in the natural world around us mm-hmm. is changing. Uh, like the old philosophy, you never step in the same river twice. You know what I mean? So what is the Mississippi River? You know what I mean? The water is always changing. The the uh the Benefits always changing and stuff like that. Yeah. And yet we can still refer to the Mississippi River. So we're in a world of change, and yet there are the certain things that are fixed, like the number one. And also, kind of tying the philosophy is like, yeah, how do we, how do, we, and you even see it very, where this plays out practically, even in these race discussions, no one knows whether they want to talk about universal man, well, we're all humans, you know what I mean? Or whether or not you want to talk about particular. Uh, whites, and particular blacks you know what I mean and so it's got this one in many problem all <laughs> yeah, over the place. and, and all, yeah it really is like it's the bedrock of all philosophy They're like is is this how do we keep unity and diversity and so whether you're yeah. doing mathematics whether you're doing race relations whether you're doing husbands and wives uh, whether you're doing politics I mean this is a dance that we're constantly up against is do I want to go for the unifying factor of all things or do I want to account for diversity in all things and yeah. and even if you listen to the rhetoric on in very popular. Uh, terms we're all equals and then we're all diverse you know what i mean and so well equal things are never diverse that's even part of the debate well if all is one yeah how do we get distinction and if we all is diversity how do we get unity and so that debate is everywhere and you see it from mathematics on down to politics and so yeah. it, you can't escape it and we're all and that's the thing we're like being philosophers or thinking through these things is good Because everybody's doing it, like I think C.S. Lewis would say, everybody's a philosopher, you're either a good one or a bad one. I I think that's a paraphrase of, uh, uh, he said it a little more eloquently. But yeah, you're either a good philosopher or a bad philosopher. And if you're not thinking about these things, you're still practically doing it. Um, The only question is whether you're doing it well or not. And I think most people in America, especially those leading us, are in very broad terms doing it very poorly. And, and that's why you see some of the dilemmas that you have, is because they don't know whether they want unity or diversity, and then they just pivot back and forth, and they're just kind of blown about. Yeah.
0: So. so maybe let's just kind of just jump to answering this, and then we'll go back through the chapters. But So how does a Christian, or how would just you, account for pl- this, pro- solve this problem? He's. Go- I think in chapter 18, he's going to talk about, like the very end of chapter 18, uh, he, he kind of references... Augustine and how he deals with it. And um, I'm just kind of curious to know,
1: yeah, how does a Christian account for the number one? Yeah, Uh, we we would say it's, uh, uh, we would say there's an eternal unity and diversity in God, like uh, stealing something from i probably originally write it in either uh, Van Til or Rush Dooney. Rush Dooney. has a pretty good book. I don't know if he solves the problem, uh, but if you've if you ever heard the name R.J. Rush he has a book called The One and the Many, and that's just a helpful book because he applies it to social okay. factors all the time. And so even the opening chapters in that book that I think are free online, if you go to like calcedon.edu, you can find that book free online and read like the opening chapter. Um, but what So what they're seeking to do is saying that uh, for the Christian, there's an eternal unity and diversity, and any diversity that we are experiencing 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 um is also rooted in the unity of basically god being the creator and so god god's the one who holds all things together so he holds together unity and diversity but we have an original eternal unity and diversity and so the christian uh believes that these things like the logos is rooted in the character of god that that these things in in some way shape or form are part of an eternal i don't i don't think i can necessarily account for it uh but we look at the reality of yeah you have these things that are, are uh Universal, They're true. They apply all over the universe. Um, and we would argue ultimately that they're things that are in the, like the mind of God. And they're, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if part's the right word. I don't want to get off that. I feel like saying they're part of God yeah, is like it, a heresy. It, yeah. but, but it's it, a, it is. it um, is. <laughs> yeah, because my next question
0: was going to be about divine simplicity. And maybe this is beyond the scope of what we'd want to cover in this podcast. But uh, So what we don't want to say is that there are any kind of Uh, that there's anything eternal like the number one that's outside of God because then uh, there can only be one eternal. Mm -hmm. There can't be multiple eternals. There can only be one infinite, not multiple infinites. And so we'd want to set, if we want to locate it in, say, the mind of God, uh, the example he uses in chapter 17 is is the color red. Yeah. So how do we know what what red is, where does red exist, and I think we'd want to say that, you know, uh, in God, all things cohere in him, to him, through him, are
1: all things. Um, And and we can have a created realm like that, you know what I mean? And so there's a sense in which we need these things, like, I I don't think redness, there's no necessity to redness, you know what I mean? And so, uh, and I, I think that's where even some of the difficulty comes in with the Platonic forms is, so for example, a car, do we really want to argue that there's a universal form called a car somewhere, you know what I mean? Even though we invented them 115 years ago or whatever. And then suddenly now there's this universal form. And so as, so as Christians, I do think we're, we're comfortable with the idea, like in Colossians 1, that he created all things visible and invisible. And so these universals that we need to have knowledge of the world are also created things. Now, there are some things, even like the Logos logic, that are kind of like necessary in all possible worlds. You know what I mean? We can't think without those. And those things, I'm more comfortable saying, are part of like God's a necessary being. And so there, there is content to who God is, not just a a blank slate eternal slate you know yeah. what I mean so there are things like the Logos in him so um, as Christians I'm comfortable with the idea that the, even the forms are created by God not all of them have to be eternal in the in, in the way that we would use it but within mathematics um, I was actually I wanted to read another book I didn't, I didn't get it in in time but that addresses a little bit more mathematics from a Christian philosophy standpoint Poitras yeah Poitras yeah. Okay.
0: yeah I, I had thought about that too I was like oh I, if I had it I would love to have cracked it open and see what he says but but we don't. Um, But I want to keep uh, chasing this down a little bit. So uh, when we talk about language, this gets into the nominalism and the realism thing. And he's going to make this uh, quote in chapter 18 where he says, linguistic ability is actually some of the most neglected evidence for design. And it's just really this passing comment that he makes. But I think it actually gets into um, kind of this whole philosophical problem that uh, he's
1: going to... I don't know how to pronounce the guy's name. Keen Yeh or, Qu- or Queen. Uh, I've or always said... Quin- I, I can be butchering. Mostly, uh, It's kind of funny. If you ever listen to any of the podcasts I do, I always get an email about me butchering a name. Yeah. I've always said Quine. I'm not sure Quine. if it's Quine. Yeah, I've always said okay. Quine, but I've uh, only read it. Let's just go with Quine. Um, <laughs> and,
0: and so he's trying to solve this problem where he, he doesn't want to do the platonic forms and uh, Stokes walks through this journey of how he basically finds it inescapable and says... I'm a reluctant platonist and uh I think when we're talking about the number 2 uh, we're getting into just the meaning of words and he, and he's going to talk about the history of philosophy you know are we just arguing about what words mean and and so how would we how should we be thinking about language and the meaning of language and symbolism in relation to these kind of nominalist and realist concepts
1: yeah um Good question. I would say, going back, as Christians, we want to root in the Logos. Jesus is the Word of God, or the 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 meaning, the meaningfulness, the rationality. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we were just talking about Gordon Clark. He has he would say that uh, Logos should be just logic, the logic of God. Mm-hmm. I'm, I don't know if I'm totally comfortable uh, reducing it down to that. So we would so we would see that in a sense, uh, in some sense, uh, God has been speaking for all eternity. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So so words themselves are rooted in the being of God, and yeah. the, the meaningfulness of everything is rooted in the being of God. So as Christians, the way we want to approach language, um, I, and, and there's obviously a, a very real elasticity to this. So if you're, uh, I was thinking about this earlier today, because if you look at our culture, um, I'm, I'm blank on this philosopher's name right now, but he he wrote a book on the social construction of reality, and he was at Berkeley, and uh, Searles, S-E-A-R-E-S-E. L-E-S was his name. And, uh, and so he wants to say, and he's wrestling with this aspect of, like, we're in a real world. Like, there is a mountain there. Um, but then he wants to turn around and say, well, marriage is socially constructed. Because if we're not here, there is nothing called marriage. But there'd still be a mountain there. Mm-hmm. And so even, like, we're in a theater right now, which now is a church. So what is it? Is it a church or is it a theater? And it depends on what we label it and how we relate to it. So, you know, maybe the church sells this building one time and then it becomes a restaurant. And so, well, is it a restaurant now? And so this same building... Can function as a movie theater, as a church, and stuff like that. So this building's socially constructed on what we use it for. There yeah. is no eternal church that this now is. You know yeah. what I mean? And and so, um, so regarding language as Christians, what we're what we're seeking to do is the awkward dance of being trying to have integrity with our language, uh, but but within that, we're, we still believe there's. Uh, real meaning and real content behind the things that we're saying. So like marriage, we would disagree with Searles that it's a pure social construction. but it's it's obviously doesn't exist in the same sense that a mountain exists. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, and so I, I think as you start to delve into these things more deeply, you realize how difficult it really is. And and I think a lot of people who just want to like function on their daily basis, they haven't stepped back and begin to th- think deeply. Like just the fact that you and I would just can be sitting here having a discussion over nominalism, realism, and and then Mitch. Well, we've met Mitch, but reading a book from a guy we haven't met, and all of his words are meaningful to us. You know, I mean? there might be some questions here and there. Um, so as Christians, I would say that it's it's rooted in the character of God. And and as Christians. We are operating from the assumption. It's not goo goo, gaga, then suddenly man just started yeah. spitting out words one day and. And uh, now, now we have this constructed reality all around us, where every word is. But at the same time, even what was it? Webster's Dictionary changed the word of racism yesterday. You know what I mean? So there's another sense in which words are elastic. You know what I mean? And did uh, they go
0: with the definition where it's like you have to be the power?
1: Yeah, the to, systemic. They include okay. the s- systems of power uh, okay. dynamic in there. And I think it was either yesterday or the day before, where it, like Webster's Dictionary. And you know, and to an extent, everyone's like, "Oh no!" And and like, but that's also the nature that language does change. You know what I mean? Yeah. So thirty, you know, fifty. Years ago, or even 100 years ago, I remember when I was in seminary, they were talking about the word stink. You know what I mean? So, you, you you know, 100 years ago, you could have told a woman she stinks nice. You know what I mean? Like, you wouldn't normally tell anybody today that she stinks nice. Yeah. So
0: Not going to try that. No, yeah, not
1: going to try that. So, so you have that component where language, you know, is elastic. And I think that's kind of the hard part. So as Christians, though, we want to be as honest and hold it with integrity as image bearers of God that we're dealing with the world. Um, and so there is a little bit of looseness there that uh, I think oftentimes Christians are afraid of. Um of the looseness but the reality is it's just there you can't you can't escape the looseness of yeah. of language and yet it's what god's given us to communicate and live with one another and love one another so
0: yeah one of the fascinating things about the christian story is so we have genesis which in in, in, in philosophy everything uh if you're a christian you need to be drawing on the genesis story because you have if you're trying to just account for rationality and communication between beings. So, so we could see birds chirping to each other, you know, or, or some apes or whatever, but they're not writing books.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and the fact that we are made in God's image, so I- if God is the Logos... And in him is, is this rationality, this logic, even the mathematical, you know, I don't know much about. The beautiful the mind. Address, <laughs> yeah, <but> uh-huh. <laughs> That's all there. And then the fact that we are made in his image gives me a way of accounting for why it is that we can use words the way we do, but animals can't. Mm-hmm. And so if, if, if it's just from a strictly evolutionary, we t- we're talking about evolution as a counter narrative. That's, I think that's a massive hole. Uh, where I just don't see the birds eventually, you know, speaking, you know, reading yeah. our books, uh huh,
1: and and doing logical deductions. Like yeah, yeah the, the the bird might know to function. They hear a tweet tweet, you know, like Pavlov's dog. You ring the yeah. bell, they come, they they salivate. So you can see that, but they're not sitting there deducing, you know. uh Reality, you know what I mean, or or even as you know, as he gets into thinking. As far as we know, they're not thinking about mathematics and just thinking, well, it's beautiful. And even last night, I was I was in a Bible study with some guys. We were discussing, and uh, he's a wonderful guy, but he's like almost no place of beauty in his theology. Because oh, we have to look after the poor. So why would I buy a painting if I just want to look up? And so it's almost like totally utilitarian. Yeah, it becomes kind of and and it kind of becomes this thrust upon. Uh, kind of the ethical in a way you know what I mean um, whereas like yeah we are rational beings and even you know the, the Greeks would have emphasized a component of that as well but as image bearers of God like why did God make the world like he enjoys beauty you know what I mean he enjoys making things and so when you enjoy making things and doing things and and I think if you're even as he lays out here in a couple uh, spaces where um, yeah there's math intertwined with everything you're doing and this is a little bit tangential but you mentioned Pythagoras which made me think in the chapter as soon as I started reading chapter 17 and he's talked about how some people turn from Newton to religion I was like it sounds of like Pythagoreans, and then, like, the next, next page, like yeah. the Pythagoras, you know, because yeah. I mean? he kind of started the cult where they were even yeah. like vegetarians and stuff like that. So, so it's uh, but I just remember Pythagoras as his theory in high school, you know, I think it was like a squared plus b squared equals c squared, maybe in the Pythagorean theorem, yeah, if forget. I remember correctly. And uh, so yeah, it was, it was uh, it was kind of interesting to uh, get a little bit of uh, yeah, a little bit of that background, even the idea that people would have started religion coming out of Newton. So, yeah.
0: the, the other thing when it comes to language that's really fascinating is Adam is given dominion to name things. And I think that's worth reflection and meditation on in this question of uh, what the meaning of words can be because it's a function of dominion. So we would say word create is creative, not in the charismatic <laughs> sense, <laughs> the but <Rima. laughs> yeah. and we would actually say prophets, like prophets come to bring judgment upon the old world to destroy it. Prophets also have the power to create new worlds. And we would even see John the Baptist, the last of the prophets of the old world. Uh, Noah built an ark, was prophesying the end of an old world. And then Christ comes, the prophet par excellence, and creates a new world in him. And so there is this function without going totally postmodern where everything is subjective necessarily. But but man, exer- under God's authority, can actually name stuff. And so a- Adam's there and he says tiger mm-hmm. or giraffe. A- and, and it's like, where did that come from? Is he drawing on a platonic form or what's he doing? But it, he, he's, uh, God has given him uh, the ability to reason and make some connection And now that's what it's called. And so there's some things that we, so we would want to say there's room in theology for us to say like the word Trinity and then, and then define, we're going to say, this is how it's defined based on scripture. But we also talk about like, we want to define sin the way the Bible does. And so it's like Christians have this unique gift of a totally objective standard um, even across the translations from the Hebrew or Greek to English or whatever, you still have some objective, immovable law, mm-hmm. and you just can't really find that anywhere else.
1: Yeah, and because if you're a pure nominalist, there's nothing fixed. So, so if everything is just merely our naming of things, you know what I mean, and and the world, you know, came into being fourteen billion years ago by an explosion and everything, and so even even if you're Darwin's origin of species he's trying to solve this one in many this union diversity problem like because he's how do we account for the origin of species like it's not merely this evolutionary process but kind of out of this one has come all this different diversity that we see and um, kind of lost my train of thought but that uh, but yet I'm sorry, I lost my, my train of thought. You, know, you were talking about subjectivity and postmodernism and um And language. And language and so yeah. Naming animals. Uh, naming naming animals. I totally totally lost my train of thought. But it was it was kinda of like, oh, because if you're if you're a pure anomalous, all you have is diversity. All you have is the many, and you have no idea how to bring these things together. Mm-hmm. And and then from there you're you're totally lost because you can and that's what postmodernism has done. It's radically made everything contingent. It kind of took the scientific revolution and said that if it's all contingent, let's run with contingency, yeah. and then it's contingency all the way down. And so, and so you don't have, and you. so what we need, my point in saying that is what we need and what Christianity provides is the unity and diversity. Mm-hmm. We, uh, God being the creator and sustainer of all things, he gives us a world of contingency that's related to his narrative. And postmodernity comes along and says there is no meta-narrative, and so you just get sheer chaos because everything's purely contingent, uh, a contingent event. Um, and I think that's... You know, a total kind of aside, but that, that I was actually reading some socialists uh, from Seattle uh, the yeah. other day. And it was kind of interesting because they kind of pointed to, uh, in their head, the end of postmodernity And their thinking was um, they had some sort of uh, riots at the New World... Uh, the, the World Trade Organization in Seattle in like 99. And they were talking about how they were kind of postmodern to, prior to that, but then they wanted unity to their thinking. And I think that's even one of the things that we're seeing with the rise of socialists uh, in America is there is a sense in which a socialist gives them unity to think. We're all one people and we're all this. And, and they want, and for a while it's been this radical fracturing, so they want to bring it together. And so, anyway, as Christians, um, my point in mentioning all that is as Christians, we look to Yahweh as the one who. We have unity and diversity in these things, and if you and I do think the minute you escape that, you get rid of that. You either has to be a pure uh, nominalist where everything's mm-hmm. just individual things and there is no unity, or you become a realist and you kind of run roughshod over everybody, yeah. and it all has to be one. Um, whereas Christians, we can step back and do the dance, and, and it might be awkward, it's not always easy, uh, but we have the parameters of doing the dance of the one of many, even like when you mentioned the Trinity, even in our creeds, those are more like guardrails to keep us from going in the heresy, more so than yeah. it uh, totally tightens God down, you know what yeah. I mean? Like You you're can't our,
0: totally define God, that by definition yeah. cannot be defined. Yeah, and right. so we have
1: some bumper Negations, rails, that keep, yeah. Yeah. and so that keeps us in the lane of, okay, we're in this Trinitarian doctrine, and we don't want to go outside of these parameters, and and here's what we're working with, and that's and even throughout this book, I think that's one of the things Mitch does well. It's kind of like this is how the world functions. You know, what I mean, this is kind of like this is how we do things. And if you've ever been friends with somebody, and you're using words, sometimes you miscommunicate, even though you think you're clear, and yeah. and you have to do that dance. So
0: yeah, so uh, let's dive into this. i uh, just kind of briefly touch on some of the highlights in these chapters. So in chapter 17, it's called the user friendly universe, and there's this just lovely quote that I. Uh, found on page 161, where he says, mathematics is God's signature. He says, it's a simple yet fertile idea. The mathematical nature of the universe is evidence of divine design. Uh, Do you have any reflections on this idea that
1: math is actually evidence of divine design? Yeah, and he helps develop this a little bit, and I think he's. And I think he's basically right. He he mentions earlier that he would call some things fingerprints, and uh, yeah, because like uh, it kind of goes back to when you're looking at the world, and uh, and you can't prove it to somebody. And I guess that's depending on what we mean by this. Is I don't think. You know, I look at numbers, I look at the unity of the world and even just our ability, like shooting off SpaceX the other day, we can shoot this thing up into the atmosphere and yeah. have it do its thing. We have these laws of physics and everything else that like, govern it. To me, like the universe isn't random. The universe isn't, you know what I mean? We, we have this rational order. So yeah, the, the basic idea is the fact that I can go and buy a glass of water. I went to Pan Express for lunch and I can go in there and like it, it all just can works. you go in there now? You can Maybe go in there right? now, yeah. <laughs> even without a mask, you can't sit in there, but you can go in there with even right. without a mask. And, but like, it all kind of works. You know what I mean? And so I think there is the beauty to the mathematics that if and like if you get away from the utilitarian. Last week we looked at instrumentalism. So if yeah. you just get away from the instrumentality of mathematics, because like how many times do you hear the kid like you may kind of mentioned in high school be like, when am I ever going to use this? You know what I mean? And if you can step back and kind of like view it as art, yeah. then it becomes beautiful. And then from there, when you begin to meditate on it, I do think like the early like New- I don't know if Newton was a Christian, but a lot of these early physicists. This we're Christians because they're expecting the world to be a certain way God's a certain way the world that he created must be a certain way so it's going to reflect that and, yeah. and I think the minute you begin to reflect on Yahweh being involved in your mathematics it changes all that stuff up but if, but oftentimes Christians kind of like even our creation we don't think about Yahweh being connected to mathematics it's mm-hmm. something we have to do because we have to do accounting and pay taxes but yeah. we don't think of God being involved with math and creating a world that's mathematical and I think once we do it kind of changes so much stuff up for us and I think it makes us enjoy God's world more rather than escaping here just to get to heaven, not go to hell.
0: So yeah, I'll just kind of summarize the basic argument of this chapter, which I think is actually really profound. And it's uh, an argument that I had never come across, but he basically says that math is an example of pure reason. Uh, You only need your mind. So you're doing stuff with things that aren't, you know real, and, you know, you have the abacus that you could move this and that, but it's pure reason, it's happening in your mind, and then he's going to say, he uses pi as an example and talks about the story with, uh, I think it's like projecting population trends or something like that, it's like, what does pi have to do with population trends, and what they basically find is that the universe seems to just be too user-friendly with our math, that, like, how is it that we could do these things by pure reason, not observable? Because remember, the evidentialist wants evidence for everything. But here's an example of using these mathematical platonic forms that have like perfect coherence and applicability in the real world. Mm-hmm. So you're actually going the other direction from where the evidentialist wants to, or the empiricist wants to smell something, taste something, touch something, and then, you know, come to knowledge. You're actually taking just a pure reason, a formula with some symbols, and then we can do all sorts of stuff in the real world with it. And the question is, how can you account for that? And Stokes' argument here is that this is evidence of divine uh, design in the universe. Um, any other thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, and I think that's one of the places, uh, you know, from an apologetic standpoint, where uh, you'll hear the unbeliever just kind of become pragmatist. They'll just say, well, it works. I don't have to account for it. It yeah. works. And that's and that's one of the things where, you kind of in a sense, you just kind of see the stubbornness of man. Because like, even the fact that like your, your basic instrumentalist does not want to think about those things more deeply. Just Well, it just works. You know what I mean? And and uh, so from an apologetic standpoint, as you're thinking of evangelizing, if you're a- applying this in any particular application to particular individuals, uh, just get ready for a, a kind of a, uh, like abort the conversation to say, well, it works. I don't need to account for it. It works. And um, so from an apologetic standpoint, that's what I see. Nine out of 10 times on a college campus is math dude just wants to abort why he can do math and he doesn't want to account for it. And as Christians, I think we should want to push it and, and let, you know, point us back to God that is part of the beauty of God's world that we can do these things mathematics but where they're gonna mess it up is they want to say it's what we're and it doesn't it doesn't work this way it's not something our mind is imposing on the world because we can shoot a rocket to the moon you know what I mean like Mm -hmm. if it was just me imposing my categories on the world there'd be no reason to think that tomorrow it's gonna work to get me to the moon so I think it is I think Mitch is right it's part of the beauty of uh, the creation when you start thinking about it Um, but what you discover like a lot of things like in even like Romans chapter 1 is that man doesn't want to think about it mm-hmm. because if he does then he's accountable for all of his mathematics and, yeah. uh, and fudging all of his m- numbers yeah
0: he's basically uh, putting their faith in math which if, if we're saying that's God's signature while denying him so they're they're making use of God's stuff this is where I think the precept positional uh, object uh, critique is totally spot on where yeah they're they're borrowing from the Christian worldview. They're making all these assumptions about the nature of reality, including their math. And they're trying to actually use God's, God's own signature to tell him that he didn't write. huh. Yeah. And there's like this great Romans one irony that this is the sinfulness of man and how blind we are uh, when God gives us over to our, our folly.
1: Yeah. And I think as you just point out there, I think, and that's, part of the, in a way, the beauty of mathematics, because they're doing two things. One, you have the supernatural element that that um, the numbers are not natural themselves and yeah. all the formulas and beauties that you're able to do from it. So you almost have like two non quote unquote scientific evidences that they're utilizing to act like their science gets them away from god yeah. and yeah like but yeah so they need these things that god has given them so it, you know it's kind of like the marxist now using the first amendment to deny the first amendment you're just like well you can you know what i mean you're free to do that yeah but you realize the end result is you're undermining yourself <laughs> because you need that first amendment to get you there so yeah uh i was
0: thinking about uh, he talks about black holes. So uh, you know, know sci- yeah, so, <laughs> so he just talks about, you know, scientists are now persuaded on page 168. He says, scientists are now persuaded of the actual existence of black holes, which is something that they've just, you know, just people did some math and boom. Okay, we believe black holes exist. And probably the most famous and recent uh, narrative to fit with this kind of pro-science, don't need God uh, would be the movie Interstellar. So, have you seen this I've movie, seen Interstellar? It, uh. So, Interstellar is a, it's a, it's worth watching because it's for one just a very beautifully and well done movie. You have some really epic scenes, but uh, the essentially the Earth is dying. Uh, we're running out of food. All that grows is corn, and so they need to go. You know, find a new, uh, you know, planet that they can take everyone to. And so, Plan A is uh, for them to go and. Uh, find this pla- the, some other planet somewhere that we can go inhabit. And, you know, they bring them into NASA, and they say, this is a black hole. And they show them, um, it's pretty cool, the, the effects they do to show what a black hole could, could look like, you know, if uh-huh. you can see one. And they're, and they're like, where did that come from? It's like, it appeared. Someone put it there. It wasn't there before, now it's there. And if you go through this black hole, they sent these probes, there's all of these potential habitable planets within reach. So we got to, there's none in our uh, solar system, go through the black hole, and then we find these other planets that we could potentially uh, inhabit. So, so they go there, and then we find out all along that uh, the plan, uh, plan A to get everyone there was actually a sham. It was a cover for plan B, which was take all these, um, I don't know, fertilized eggs that are in this, you know, frozen jet. And they're, they're like, the Earth, there's no hope for the Earth. We just have to do it. But meanwhile, on Earth, there's this physicist who's trying to solve the problem of gravity so that he can get everybody to wherever they need to go. And he he can't solve the formula. And uh, it's so that they eventually go through this black hole on this mission, and they get this data from what gravity, uh, you know, some formula for, for how solving this gravity problem. And um, kind of in the big reveal at the end of the movie, you find out, that they are the ones who saved themselves. They go through, like, space-time, and so they mess with, like, time, and, you know, time is in the fourth dimension, and uh, humanity has evolved to the point now where we can g- actually go back in time and save ourselves. So there's tons of, like, philosophy going on there, but you're like, this is the best narrative that you could possibly give for accounting for something like how, how we ended up here, mm-hmm. how... The relationship between science and philosophy. Um, and and some atheists were actually very critical of the movie because they say one of the big questions, the philosophical question of the movie is, what can travel through space-time? And so they, they think gravity can, and then love. <laughs> and, and they have this really interesting discussion where this woman is in love with one of the astronauts who went out there earlier, and she's like, I'm drawn to this place. But in spite of the evidence that it's a less likely planet for being habitable, and she's basically saying love is the other thing hmm. that can you know transcend these these laws. So you can see they're wrestling with what is transcendent, mm-hmm. what is, where can we find meaning, and then even where can we find salvation? Yeah, and it's a totally humanistic. And it's so salvation. funny because like
1: my my nature is like laugh at it, but you're like, but like. In a sense, John three sixteen. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, because it's, it's, it's so, in a way, it's so simple. But like, yeah, we, and um, yeah, yeah. You, know, j- you think of our culture's kind of obsession with love, and like, but when you talk to people, so few people f- genuinely feel love. You know what I mean? There's a lot of immorality. Love is love. Love wins. Whatever it is, and uh, yeah, it's funny because, but yeah, uh, but, you know, it. If what we're saying is true, man should be desiring to be loved. And you know, you know I, I used to think something like this was cheesy, but it's Augustine. You know, uh, yeah. something about basically, I'm restless till I find my rest in you, type of thing. And and so. Th- you know the when I thought I was a hardcore reform guy, I used to like mock that sort of thing. But the reality is like that's what we're looking for. And, and yeah. as Christians, we have both. You know what I mean? We have the we have the numbers, we have the science, we have the beauty, yeah. uh, these sorts of things. and We also do have a message that's fundamentally about the love of God towards the world. Um, yeah. It's not just abs- It's not that we just get to solve abstract philosophical problems or think we do. Yeah. Uh, we have a God, and because one of the great problems that we do have is the very practical idea of love, and we have a God who loves us and desires to be with us and pursues us so yeah Yeah. and is drawn and draws us to him so yeah it's interesting i'm gonna have to watch that movie now (laughs) Um,
0: so let's just jump to chapter 18 and we'll we'll close off this episode Uh, i want to talk about this quote on page 184 and he basically says naturalism leads to supernaturalism the physical world of space and time simply doesn't have the resources to support itself. So this idea that if you are a naturalist, you become a a supernaturalist reminded me of John Frame, where he talks about the rationalists are actually irrational and the irrationalists are... And you Mm -hmm. kind of go back and forth. And you were kind of even alluding to this, talking about the the protesters and what socialism does, where um, you actually kind of go from one extreme to the other. So you want everyone to be all one, but you also want everyone to be many, and it goes from tyranny to anarchy (laughs) to tyranny to anarchy, Mm -hmm. and there is no coherent uh, principle that they can be unified, except the triune God. So uh, Christianity is the only way you can have that. Uh, But what do you think of this kind of naturalism leads to supernaturalism critique, and how could we maybe employ that? In our apologetic.
1: Yeah, I would, I would say I would definitely agree with it because kind of building out a quine and building out some of the things that we said. You need, in in order to do anything in the world, you you do need in something like a platonic form. You need to be a realist about numbers. You need to be. You a, keep it real. You keep it real. Yeah, just so you keep your apologetic real. <laughs> and uh, but yeah, if you think about it, like you need, and that's, and that's one of the frustrating things is is because they're still able to do it. You know what I mean? It's like, um, you know, Think of somebody who, you know, say they hate the state and they're collecting their welfare check, but and they're able to live because of the welfare check. And they're like, man, I hate welfare, but you're living off the welfare check. You know what I mean? So the so the guy who's sitting there just wants to be a naturalist because he's still able to do his mathematics. Even if he's stubborn and and hard-headed, there is no move to make him cry uncle. You know what I mean? And so I would say two things. First of all, apologetically, probably like 15 years ago, I finally gave up the idea that I can make people cry uncle. Like then, early on in my Christian life, I remember thinking like, if I just get this argument right, I'll get them to cry cry uncle, you know what I mean? They'll have to submit. And you realize that when you're dealing with persons, Um, even if you've ever done counseling before, you have a married couple who's bitterly divorced, Um, reasons not really governing things uh, and there's a lot of personal factors that go into all their understanding of all the events. So it's not mathematics, you know what I mean? So when you're doing apologetics it's not two plus two equals four and we're like okay uncle, I agree with you, because there's that personal dynamic going on there and they have vested interests. so, but regarding the naturalism leads to supernaturalism, is even things like logic itself, it's kind of more famous, Bonson made that pretty famous in the Bonson-Stein debate, is that that's not a natural quality, is this idea of reasoning. Um, the, the number two is not, an even equals, even the idea of equals, when you have two plus two equals four, like that, wh- that whole set there is not natural in nature. So, I think if you begin to contemplate these chapters and think about it, then you begin to think about the rest of your life and the people that you're interacting with. So if you're an engineer, I mean, that should be pretty clean. Pl- the stuff that you're doing with your fellow engineers, when you're doing law, if you're a lawyered with your fellow lawyers, thinking through these categories that like, okay, everything we're doing here is not natural. It's not empirical in nature. And it's not a mere nominalism. We're not just naming things. Uh, that I think it's at that point that you're apologetic in whatever your context is, because realizing, like we said earlier, kind of quoting C.S. Lewis, is you're Everybody's doing these things. They're either doing it well or they're doing it poorly. And our responsibility with the particular individuals that we're interacting with is applying it in a meaningful way to them. And so if it's an engineer or if it's the garbage man, you know what I mean? And, or if it's the guy who's, uh, you know, the, the teacher, whatever it is, uh, whatever your context is where you're interacting with people, you have to think through these things and be like, okay, how is this meaningful to this person sitting across the table from me? So Jesus going to the woman at the well is a different conversation than the Pharisees. And so we don't have a one size fits all. And whatever context you're in, you're already there. So like I remember when I moved, lived in New York City and I was working in the finance world, um, I remember Christians were always wrestling, with, how do we share the faith with people? I'm like, dude, like, just do it. Like, I never thought twice of how I'm going to talk about football with these people. You know what I mean? I just talked football with them. I never thought twice of how I'm going to talk about what I'm doing this weekend. I just thought, and so it, it's it's our mistake when we think Christianity is this whole other realm that they're doing. But once you begin to think about these things, you realize that like, oh my goodness, my Christianity is intertwined with the way I'm doing math. It's not this completely alien thing that I have to insert into the topic. It's part and parcel of every topic that I'm discussing. Now the question becomes, how do I have wisdom in applying it? And that's where you as an individual are going to have to think it through. But if you think through that, even that statement of some of the things we've talked about, you'll see that like whatever your workplace is, whatever your friendships are, you'll see it; they're vacillating between the natural and the supernatural, or the visible and the invisible, I guess, is, is the best way to kind of use Colossians 1 language, and uh, you realize that people are doing that, and your responsibility is, in some sense, point out to them, see right here, this idea of love that you have in this movie, it's not a natural quality, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's, it's, a, it's, it's something that beyond a natural quality, this yeah. desire for love, so um, that would be the place where I would say that we have to think through our application of it, so. Yeah.
0: Well, uh, that's it for uh, this episode of Philosophy Friday. Uh, next week, we are going to be finishing the book, looking at the problem of evil. Uh, so that could be a, a longer episode, or maybe a, sh- a shorter one. We'll we'll figure that out,
1: and then we'll button uh, it up in about twenty minutes. Yeah, <laughs> <think> we, we, <laughs> well, we, can, we can solve we can solve <laughs>
0: this, um, and then we'll announce uh, maybe in that episode or or the following one. Uh, we'll see if we can get uh, Stokes uh, maybe an interview with him. Um, maybe, maybe not. We'll see how busy he is, um, and then we'll be starting a new book. And we have a few different ideas, but we'll we'll announce that. Uh, Keith, uh, can you just give us a quick update on what are your kind of what other projects are you working on? And
1: yes, know? so I got another podcast on the Fight Laugh Feast Network, uh, KDCP, into your little search engines, your podcast search engines, and um, so yeah, that's uh, Keith, their campus preacher. Uh, So hopefully I'm going to be focused a little bit more on those over the summer. Uh, Also on Instagram at Campus Preacher. Uh, Hopefully, I I only have two up right now, but we're going to start doing, I'm just going to start doing a Bible study walking through Mark. And I'm actually pretty excited about the project because it's going to be very kind of bird's eye view. But what I want to do uh, with people is get them to read the Bible as a piece of literature. So when you're reading through Mark, I'm just going to highlight things as we go along Where if you're, I don't know what the best illustration would be, um, but if you're immersed in a great poem and, you know, 20 stanzas in he's referring back to earlier things you want to be able to pick up on that language so what I want to do is just kind of show through Mark's gospel of how he's echoing things from the Old Testament and some of the ways he's using language as literature is pointing us in certain directions and so the the, the hard thing is even I've, I've been in a Bible study with some guys over Mark and, and one of the gentlemen always like so you're not saying it's history? No I think it's history you know what I mean but, but you have a, like if you and I are telling stories we add some flavor to the stories and we use certain words you know yeah. what I mean to, to help tell the story and move it along and um, I guess uh, I guess my illustration is usually a stand-up comedian. Like if you listen to a stand-up comedian on a set, he you know his jokes have a cadence to it, and he he might refer back to earlier jokes throughout. Then at the end, he has one big joke that might tie up his whole set. And yeah. a good comedian would do that. And so the Bible's kind of like a great piece of comedy that intertwines all that stuff. So I'm going to go through Mark with a, a guy up here named Danny Bradley. I know. And we're gonna crank through that and then we're gonna move into Daniel. So we got a handful of things, and I got a, a couple cou- Oh man, you're gonna do Daniel. Yeah, we're gonna do Daniel. We're it's gonna be very cursory. Uh we're not gonna get into all the details because because and part of it, the part of the reason we're gonna do Daniel is when you're going through Mark, you need the Son of Man language from Daniel seven. And okay. if you don't and that's part of my debate with these guys in this Bible study, he's like, You're hermeneutic's so fancy. It's not fancy. I just kind of know Daniel. Yeah. And so when I'm reading Mark, I hear Daniel, and I think a Jew in the first century would have been hearing Daniel. Whereas for us who don't know Daniel is completely foreign and so from a hermeneutic standpoint it's like if we just took someone out of the Amazon who's never watched TV we plop them in front of a TV they're like what's going on you know yeah. what I mean but for you and I like we turn on TV we're like oh that's a movie yeah. if there's an explosion we're like oh fake explosion movie explosion <laughs> real, real ex- what's really going not, on real, yeah. Re- yeah real <laughs> explosion and so our hermeneutic is so immersed embedded in this that we don't think about those things so anyway that's what I want to do through Mark, and then we'll uh, then we'll do Daniel, and then we'll kind of go on from there. So, and if you want to reach me, Keith Daryl at Camp at Gmail, actually Keith at CampusPreacher.com, uh, Campus Evangel on Twitter, Campus Preacher on Instagram.
0: You should just have like one, so it's a little more simple. One I, name for all. I of know. It, I tried.
1: Well, I got campus. Got Preacher, many, I, I you got one and many. Yeah, I got one. Well, I want. There, there's somebody. Oh, if you know who he is, there's somebody who's got Campus Preacher on Twitter, and he okay. doesn't have any posts. He doesn't hasn't done anything since 2015. Can yeah. talk to Sean Patterson about ch- chasing him down and buying out his? Y- uh, yeah, I've, I've tried to email him and stuff like that to no avail. So ideally, I'd love to get everything under the Campus Preacher banner. Yeah. Um, but I only have uh, Instagram. I, I don't. I can't get that Twitter okay. right now. So yeah.
0: Who knows? These Campuses might all be shut down and to you. <laughs> yeah, you so, might need to find a new title. Yeah, so if
1: you want me to come preach to you in the fall, if all the campuses are shut down, yeah. feel free
0: to email me. Yeah. All right, until next time. Peace.